Hey everybody, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This episode is part two of a previous episode where Nick Gibson and Joel B were talking about critical race theory. That discussion went on pretty long, but it was all really good stuff, so we decided to split it into two parts. So today you're getting part two of that previous discussion about critical race theory. relative to things cognate to critical race theory, right? Um, and I, I want to say something before I do that to the fur listeners. Remember listeners, um, especially in this series um, that we're doing about about touchy issues here, um, I think it's called Beyond Hot Takes. It's not, I'm not here to, t- to argue with Joel about his views. Part of, the, part of this series is for me to let people talk and say their thing and for me not to... Con- so if you don't be... If you don't like what Joel says, the point is to listen and see if it's reasonable and to see if it should moderate your view in any way or whether or not it's right. Okay, so Joel, we hear the word, the phrase white supremacy used a lot. Like, how should a Christian think about that? Like, now, right? So, like, people, so like, I'm 43. I never knowingly lived in a context in which I could say, oh, see, that structural thing is designed to keep black people down. And when I was in college, a friend of affirmative action was a big thing. Yeah. So I was much more likely as a white person to feel like I was being discriminated against hmm. because, I, because I was going to a college, right? Not on scholarship though. So a bunch of my black friends were paying nothing. Um, they had had much worse grades, grades in school, but because of the, I had professors that I actually didn't think were as good as some of the other professors. And I thought that they had gotten an affirmative action. Now that may be false. My perception, I mean, I was 19, 18, 19, 20 years old, but my perception was, if anything, this had been reversed. Right. And yet that was, that was 25 years ago. Right. And now we're like, this is, a, you know, white supremacy. And so and then you also have the issue where like you hear the phrase white supremacy a lot. We got to do something about it. But it's I, like I have almost lost interest in the investigation of it because so many times people say this is white supremacy. And then I, I try to look into it as empirically as possible. And it just looks like cherry picking. It just does not look like an empirical explanation of what's really happening. Because I want to get on board with any place there's white supremacy. And then I find that it's like it's like mirages in the desert. The closer I get, they disappear. And so how do you think this through? Because I, I think you think that like white supremacy is a thing, like not as any, everybody defines it, but like it is a thing that exists. How do you think through its existence and then its application? Because as a Christian, I think um, incumbency superiority must exist. Like we all want to keep our stuff and white people are, um, are an incumbent majority. And so you would think the way that would function is that those people would try to keep what's there somehow. So for me, just anthropologically and theologically, like what human beings are and what my theology says about how we're depraved, I would expect there to be white supremacy in America or some of it, right? But man, I have trouble finding super clear examples of it that I can like stick my pitchfork in and like try to shovel some hay to make better. Does that make sense? I, I feel like I'm just being asked to shut up and do what I'm told. And as a person who was like, didn't hit puberty early and got bullied a lot, my immediate reaction to shutting up and doing what I'm told is to fight tooth and nail against that person. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Yeah, look, I, I don't often frame things in terms of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. I prefer to talk about privilege 
I prefer to talk about racial advantage and racial disadvantage. And for two reasons. I mean, one, the phrase white supremacy, um, I think it just triggers people the wrong way. I think um, especially a lot of uh, white evangelicals, people I interact with a lot, I think I think they just are unsure what's being said or they have an idea of what's being said and they think that can't be a reality in America, right? So a sort of common sense, ordinary conception of white supremacy is the KKK, right? These explicitly racist attitudes and beliefs that people attempt to act on. Right, perpetuated uh, well, through extreme violence. Right, exactly. And coordination. So, right, that's the classic yeah. sense of white supremacy. Um, but the, 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 the issue is that white supremacy has sort of evolved. This like the slogan, there is white supremacy, or America is a white supremacist nation, it has evolved mm-hmm. to mean different things. So I think it's important for like listeners to know that when people say that there is white supremacy in America, people aren't just saying the sort of trivial claim that the KKK is still around. They're saying something else. I mean, they're saying something like this. America has a legacy of elevating white people's contributions to history, elevating white people as the epitome of success and intellectualism. America has a legacy of not prioritizing the needs of the least well-off who have often been minorities, who have often been African-Americans. America has a legacy of stigmatizing and vilifying, even unintentionally, um, black culture, African-American culture, however diverse that may be, it tends to be stigmatized while elevating, quote unquote, white culture as the sort of norm. What whites do how whites behave, what whites think, what Mm -hmm. whites do with their lives. This is sort of the norm and we need to pursue that. And I'm not saying that people necessarily consciously do this. The idea is that this just sort of, it's it's something we're brought up in and socialized into. I mean, think about this. You know, when I grew up, I, I rarely saw black actors on TV. It just, there was very little representation. And if I did see them, they were often, they were often in gangs or involved in criminal activity. Joel, how old are you? I am 31. Okay. So you didn't grow up with the Huxtables in Benson? No, I mean, and to be fair, like I, I was also a missionary kid, so I'm, I'm not sure how like exposed I was in my early oh, years okay, to like okay. whatever was going on in America. But I, I mean, okay. I, I was, I watched what Because like at 43 and about a third of the sitcoms I watched were, had black leads. Yeah. Like whether it was the Huxtables and Bill Cosby, who was seen as the paragon of family virtue at that moment and then there was family matters and then there was this great show called benson which i don't think anybody watches anymore which is like a white governor and his like chief of staff was this black dude and he and it was like the white people were always the idiots and he was always like cleaning up their messes it was a really funny show but like he was he was like the main character and like the hero kind of you know so but i only had four channels you know what i mean but those were what were on those channels but but i think as but I see, I think part of what happened was TV got raw and mm. it got more, it moved to be more rated PG 13 than rated R. Like my kids go on and watch TV now, almost everything's MA and there's yeah. blood flying everywhere. And I think more disgusting and disturbing storylines were needed. Mm. And I think that you got more, I think you got uglier stuff. And I think that, I think that, I, I think it might've gotten worse from, I don't know, but I'm, but I'm just saying, but I think you're right, generally speaking. I mean, obviously, there's been many more white characters. There have been a lot of black villains. I think that's all, that's all true. Yeah, I, I mean, think about who who plays like lead roles, who plays subordinate roles. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and even where there are lots of movies rep- representing black people, it's it's not uncommon uh, for the, for that to involve violence or criminal activity. And I mean, a lot of this is even coming... when those are written, produced, and directed by black people, right? Sure, that, that could be that could be a thing too. Um, I mean, the, but the people who are like dishing out money for these things, who are who have sort of the power within Hollywood, are white, predominantly white people. And so, I mean, look, would it you, have to be would all you about... say that's true in rap music? No, that I, hasn't I, been true I, in I, rap, rap music since the '80s, has it? I have no idea. I don't, I don't listen to rap. Oh, but okay. like, look, I mean, you can set aside you can set aside entertainment. The reality is that like entertainment has created certain kinds of images of mm-hmm. black Americans, even if there has been other kinds of rep- representation that are good, but yeah. that works in tandem with other things we're seeing and hearing and learning about, um, you know, black history, like very thin when I was growing up in a lot of places, it's very thin. So yeah. all, there are all these sorts of ways in which we unintentionally elevate white people without realizing that we're diminishing other people's experiences. We're uh, underappreciating their contributions and so on. And so it creates impressions. Mm-hmm. It creates a certain conception of who the American is. Um, yeah. So that's kind of what people mean by by white supremacy. Again, I prefer to talk about privilege. I mean, I, I could talk to you the rest of this this episode about what white privilege is and the ways in which white Americans tend as a group to receive all sorts of unearned advantages as compared to Black Americans mm-hmm. uh, in a number of ways. And I can and I and I can I think I could argue convincingly that a lot of this goes back to the legacy of Jim Crow and uh, racist policies by the Federal Housing Administration that effectively destroyed the. Uh, the accumulation of wealth in the black community because of how it destroyed black home ownership. Like there are all sorts of ways in which the ongoing impact of ex- almost explicitly racist things in America continue to have enduring impact today and continues to undermine this idea of meritocracy that you can get anywhere you want in life if you just try hard enough or that America is post-racial and like anyone can succeed if they just try hard enough. And and unfortunately, I don't think the the evidence shows that that's not true. Unfortunately, I wish it was true. It's not true, uh, in my view. And so, white supremacy aside, do you white think privilege, that white advantage—that is a reality. And 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 I think that as a church, we need to have more conversations about the ways in which white people are advantaged, not for the sake of creating guilt, not for the sake of saying you're a bad person, you're a racist. You can be, you can have white privilege and not be a racist, but for the sake of understanding the hardships and the disadvantages that many of our black brothers and sisters face, and the kind of adversities and courage they've endured, they've they've manifested. In, in overcoming those things. I think that, you know, we need, mm-hmm. we need to wake up to these things. So Joel, I want to make a distinction that I want to see if you agree with, but I also think it's important for people who hold a fairly conservative view of culture, which is the proper way of understanding white privilege is not to say that a disadvantaged person can't rise in America, but that distributionally as a population, disadvantaged people won't rise in America because of what we would consider white privilege. That is that like, it's not as though white privilege is a thing that makes it. So every black young man or woman can't succeed. Right. That's not what white privilege means. Right. Well, white because you, you, if you have the self-discipline and if you have the drive and if you have the blah, 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 you know, you can do all the things right and you really can make it and you can make it really well. And I think within the black community, the people who do make it, make it big because they're a minority of people who make it and everybody's bidding up their salaries. But then you've got the normal people who like are discouraged by discouraging things. And they are, they, they find themselves hopeless within a context of hopelessness. And the people who tell the messages they shouldn't listen to, they listen to. 
And because the human soul longs for connection, they look for what connections are available, whether sexual relationships that are going to hold them back or gang relationships that are going to get them in trouble. And so that, so that like when you get down to the level of like the distributionally average person, your average white person that is in a context that has these quote privileges, right, is naturally flowing in a direction where they're going to do fine. And your average black person who is in a different context that doesn't have these privileges is distributionally more likely to get tripped up in some way and to not be successful. And this gets worse as American success becomes more complicated. As American success requires increasingly technical skills, higher levels of education, which require higher levels of success at younger ages, um, the 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 differences in capacity and support can make catastrophic differences in outcomes for people. And then if you add on to that, the, like the, the factor of 10 difference in wealth between black and white families and so on. Yeah. The fact that money basically buys you time and allows you to correct mistakes. But then for the, for some of these people, black people, they don't have that money to buy them time and correct mistakes. So mistakes are more catastrophic and they can't buy themselves time, right? So there's they don't have the tolerances in the system. They don't have give. Whereas white people have these structures and money and stuff that give them more give. And so even just on that level of things, though you're going to have white stars and, and black stars and any black person, any minority kid can rise in America. That can happen. Anybody can do it predictably with real human beings for so many kids, they won't do it. And that morally should matter in a societal level to us just as much. Right. Absolutely. And, and I would add to that, that even if, even if many black Americans can succeed and they are, and they're making excellent mm-hmm. contributions in education, science and elsewhere, Right. Even if they can succeed, it doesn't mean that their journey to success and their journey making upward mobility in life was as easy or as unhindered as many as, as the journey that many white people experience. They're, they're going to run into certain kinds of hurdles and challenges that I will never and have never experienced. The flip side of that is that even white people can struggle, right? So it's not just that white yeah, privilege it, isn't just... And do even white people do struggle? Yeah, they they can right. and they do struggle, right? And so priv- privilege is not about saying that your life is going to be easy. Privilege is not about saying that you have it made in the shade. Um, privilege right. is about group characteristics, and as you put it, the sort of general distributions of goods. And so yeah. one way I like to think about privilege is kind of goes back to the work of Alan Johnson, who is a sociologist doing really mm-hmm. good work in the late twentieth century. Just says that like, look, privilege is something that attaches primarily to groups, not to individuals. And it loads the odds in favor of my success as a white person and loads the odds against your success as a black person. Now, odds can be overcome. I can overcome those things, but the initial odds are not equal between us. And it explains a lot of the disparities we see um, in the world. And I think that a lot of the hurdles, a lot of the, the odds being stacked against people goes back to the legacy of Jim Crow, goes back to the legacy of black home ownership being decimated by the Federal Housing Administration. Read Read uh, Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law. Uh, there, there are all sorts of things mm-hmm. that explain these things going on. And so, look, you know, sometimes I talk to people because um, I do, I do research on privilege and, and like the sort of moral ramifications of being a, a privileged person. And I've had multiple conversations with friends on 
on um, social media and elsewhere, where as soon as I use the word white privilege, they say, oh, that's CRT. That's just yeah. critical race theory. And therefore false. Yeah, and therefore false. So let's, let's just yeah. park there for a second. Like, mm-hmm. first of all, pointing out that a view or a conclusion might have arisen from some other view or some discipline doesn't mm-hmm. mean it's false, right? So this is what philosophers call mm-hmm. the genetic fallacy, where you, you argue against the truth or plausi- plausibility of a view by pointing out its etiology or its history or how it came about. Right. And this and, is just like an, a lot of the critical race theory stuff, if you go back, is associated with or connected with people who are connected to Marxist critical theory, which is why a lot of Christians feel like this is all just warmed over Marxism. Right. That's what we're being told. And mm-hmm. look, there is some truth to that. Um, I just read a paper recently by a neo-Marxist who is criticizing critical race theory because he thinks it's too weak. He thinks it doesn't really have a strategy for undoing racism. Critical race theorists are all about storytelling and like restructuring our understanding of history. Like, let's tell the full story of history and let's allow marginalized voices to be centered. That's what critical race theorists are like, by and large, pushing for. And there are some other people on the fringe who are pushing for more radical things. But this like neo-Marxist, who's a popular uh, neo-Marxist, is like critical race theory is weak. So. That's a tangent view. So even even neo-Marxists sometimes take issue with critical race theory. But the reality is that you can't argue against a view by pointing out where it came from, right? Um, Suppose that Einstein uh, came up with the theory of relativity because he he wanted to impress everyone. So his like motivation was really bad. And uh, he thought that he could like, acquire all this wealth by coming up with this false theory. He's like, I'm just going to come up with a really confusing theory and tell you that space time is intertwined. And And he smacked around a bunch of mistresses on the side too. Yeah. He did a bunch of awful things on the side. And then he comes up with this theory. Like you can't argue against this theory by saying, Oh, you had bad intentions behind this. You're an evil person. You were, you were influenced by this really other bad thing. Like the truth or the truth or falsity of a view stands on its own, right? We have to look Mm -hmm. at the evidence and the arguments for it. So when people say, that's just critical race theory. That isn't an argument against what's being said. And so we just need to be careful that we're not committing the genetic fallacy. Um, that we're okay, not... so let me, Joel, let me push back on that a little bit. Yeah. Because I think a clever defensive white person here would say something like, okay, but here's the problem. That's got to cut both ways for standpoint theory. Like if I can't commit the genetic fallacy and argue about how bad CRT is because of where it came from, how can you argue that I can't talk about racism or this world as a white person because I am situated in my standpoint? Isn't that just the an ad hominem fallacy that's just as bad as a genetic fallacy? I think there's a difference. Um, I think there is a difference. But I, I well, but I, isn't the difference? Can you pin the tail on the donkey? That's the difference. Like if you can show that I am saying what I'm saying because I'm situated where I am, you can show that that's true that it's not an ad hominem fallacy. Similarly, if I can say that CRT, CRT is bad because it's connected with Marxism, I have to show the connection with Marxism. I have to yeah. show that what you're saying is indistinguishable from the anti-God, anti-Christian tenets of Marxism and that they are embedded in your view of CRT. Does that yeah. make sense? Or yeah, I right. could argue CRT prominently and widely. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think some Christians do think that. And I've heard some arguments that I felt like were pretty persuasive, right? Yeah. Um, this goes back to, we were talking about this before, that um, is CRT a philosophy where you eat the watermelon and spit out the seeds? Right. Or so like most of it's fine. It, there's some things you got to spit out. They're, they're just wrong. Or is it like eating a mouse where there's like, there's a few, there's a little few bits of meat, but you basically want to spit out the whole thing. And I think there are some Christians who feel like it's watermelon 
where yeah. you know it's it's mostly me it's good it's it, and it's helpful and you get yeah, there's some stuff you got to spit out there's some like marxisty materialistic things um derek bell for example just was incredibly cynical about human nature and about people doing things for moral reasons and i just don't think a christian can accept that view entirely about human nature but that doesn't mean that his view about blacks and the law was wrong right so you just spit right. out those seeds right or some Christians feel like it's like eating a mouse. You're like, oh, you got that little piece of meat. There's a couple insights in there. But most of this is just like reverse bigotry. It's just – it's people who think that the whole world revolves around power games. And so – so have you ever read the book Jesus and the Disinherited by, no, by Howard Thurman? Okay, no. you got to read it because it's super short and yeah. it's, it's wonderful. Okay, Howard Thurman basically says there are three sins that the poor and the disenfranchised – are tempted to commit. Okay. One is fear. One is lies. Right. And one is hate. And Jesus disinherited himself, calls them not to fall for, into any of those three things to destroy who they are as individuals and as creatures made in God's image. In this, his second chapter, which I think is really the fourth chapter, third chapter of the book, he says, um, lies have always been the way the disinherited have, have coped with the strong. It was their way of playing a game and getting the better of the stronger person so that they could survive, right? To that, to this, to the extent to which critical theory focuses on relationships of power, and as an activist theory trying to undo those systems of power, it makes sense that it would just be doing the opposite of what it's what if it's critiquing, that it's really just itself a power game, disinterested in the truth, just trying to get power for a different group of people and to do it through a fake set of language games by which to fool them long enough to get the reins of power. And when I look at when I look at what critical race theory really does grow out of, I mean that wouldn't surprise me at all. And and so I'm not saying that that's true for the whole kit and caboodle. But there's part of me that's like I need to look at all these claims really carefully because just as Derek Bell can talk about incentives of the incumbent group, there are other similar there are there are opposite incentives for the non-incumbent group to get power, the revolutionary group. Sure. And one of the things that um, that I think they'll got not, uh, that that primary you that you're from one of the things that they talk about is that one of the things that critical race theory as a pretty much as a school is against is liberal incrementalism. Mm-hmm. That we should be we should be increasingly just try to get become more colorblind, more fair, and that that's an incremental thing that we we approach slowly and better every day. And that critical race theorists tend to take a more revolutionary approach that these systems cannot be redeemed that way. That one, it's too slow, even if you could. And two, it probably can't even be done. And so in that sense, I think it is in the hit, in the, in the river of Marxism in the sense that it appeals to a revolutionary theory of change, that the systems themselves have to be taken down and other systems have to be constructed. They're not always Leninist, like let's kill everybody and make the blood sure. the streets run with blood, but let's powerfully and if necessary, to whatever extent is necessary violently, take control so that we can get some systems that are more just. Not always they're not always designed to be systems of revenge. What do you think the systems are? What do you think critical racers want to replace our current system with? I have a really hard time getting those kinds of answers out of people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, I, but at I've the same time, to, I've struggled to find answers like that but too. I, and but I have had black friends and, and Christians say this whole system has to get torn down. We have to tear down the whole system. And yeah, I'm like, but we have to be okay, careful here. Okay. 
that creates people, chaos. Yeah. But, what, what do you want to do? Yeah. And sometimes they're just like, you, you, here's what it usually is. We want you to take all the white people out of power and put black people in power. And that's usually, they, and, I've never, and I've never heard get that. It. Those people will get it because they're coming from the right standpoint and they'll make the changes we need. Well, no, that's exactly what happened here in Madison. We needed a new district superintendent. They found a very qualified Latino and there they hell was raised because we didn't hire the black superintendent. We, we got the, we got the Latino guy to bow out so we could hire the black superintendent because the idea I think is that because, because the other person, it was, he would, he wasn't going to get it sufficiently. Right. And he, like, he's a person of color. He was Latino, but he was from Texas. He hadn't been around all, but we wanted this other guy and they got the other guy. And I, listen, I wrote a letter of support. The minute he came to town, I was like, I'm so glad you're here. I sent him a gift card to a nice restaurant. I was like, I can't wait to get behind you because I, I hope he'll do great stuff. But, but that's the idea. The idea is we get this guy in power and because he's a black man, he just gets it more and he will understand what kids of color need and he'll do those things. And whatever that does to the white kids, that just has to be done. It's just, I mean, maybe it's too bad. Maybe it's not too bad, but they've had privilege for a long time. Whatever these kids of color need, we do that. And that becomes the priority. And that may radically change the system. And that's fine because we need a new system. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not sure what to to make of that. I think I'd have to process it. Um, I don't hear a lot of people saying that we need to replace all white people with black people. I hear people wanting greater representation. I want, I hear people saying we've for too long had people in positions of power where the position of power or authority is over predominantly black spaces, but those people are themselves unacquainted with the legacy of racism. They're, they're unacquainted with what it's like to grow mm-hmm. up in black spaces. That's yeah. in my view, that's absolutely right. That we have a lot, had a lot of white representation for black people and that white representation has been really disconnected, really disconnected. And I, and I, I hear a call to correct for that. I don't know about the yeah. superintendent. I don't know who he was. I don't know what he did. But I also, I mean, something you said caught my attention, you know, that he might be able to serve the black children better. He might be able to serve them well, but who knows at what cost to white children? And I don't mm-hmm. know. I mean, maybe um, out of charity, he could do, he could, he, he could succeed for both, you know? And I think too, part of the issue is that white children stand to gain from black leadership, stand to gain from um, learning about black history, right? It's not like, yeah, it's, it, there are things to be, to be learned but, and gained but, from but Joel, black I don't leadership. Think that's what's up for debate, right? Like, I think you're right. Like if, if somebody like that comes in and says, listen, um, we're going to, we're going to have a black history curriculum that isn't going to focus on the history of slavery in America so that all the black kids can feel terrible about like what happened to their ancestors. We're going to focus on black heroes. I, I don't think it's basically, nobody's got a problem with that, that I know of, right? Here's the, here's what I hear about educationally. Um, different kids are ready for different things at different age groups. And when it comes to kids who are um, underperforming in terms of disparate performance, you have to structure the classroom for one group or the other. And one of the reasons why some schools, these kids do really badly is because they're actually structured for kids who come in in fourth grade reading ready and they're ready to do the stuff. They have executive function and blah, blah, blah. Right. They're like, they're socialized in a certain way to be ready for a certain kind of education. And then you have other kids, just they're, they're not socialized that way. And so you have to set up the classroom for one or the other group. And the, and, the, and the reality is, and I've been working with a bunch of these schools now, you can take kids from, let's say you're supposed to be at five when you come into grade, whatever. You can take kids from one who are behind 
to three or four or to six. It's very difficult to do that in the same classroom. You're taking kids from five to nine. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is instructional, instructionally, you have to start making some decisions. What's going to be prioritized? Are we trying to get these kids that are quote, like on par ready? Are we trying to get them ready for like Dartmouth? Or are we trying to get kids that can like, they can't even read at their grade level up to one grade ahead of grade level, which are we trying to do? And that classroom is not set up the same way. Right. And so this was a huge debate back in the nineties with tracking, Hmm. whether or not you should actually take kids and divide them based on how they were doing so that you could focus on what was academically appropriate to these subgroups. And people were like, that's, you can't do that because basically you're deciding kids destinies before they happen. Right. You're sending some kids to like blue collar stuff and some kids to college. You're making that decision when they're really young, even though they do that all through Europe, we're not going to do that here. And so you had one in that movement in that discussion in the 90s was what was called inclusion, right? We're going to keep everybody in the classroom together, which for most, but almost no teacher is talented enough to take everybody forward. Right. I've known two or three teachers out of hundreds that can actually do that. Most can't. They either, they either teach to the middle, they teach to the bottom or they teach to the top and they have to make a choice. So this is the issue like, like that we've had. Like, for example, we've been really supportive of Lighthouse School. Lighthouse School is designed to take kids from one to six. It's just designed that way. And they do a really good job with that. They're one of the best in the state. But our school that, that up until we started receiving vouchers was mostly getting kids from families that were highly educated. And the kids were already at five when they came in. So we were a five to nine school. Well, that's just a different kind of school. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it, it deals with people who are intersectionally privileged. That might be because they were white privileged. It could be because they're from black families who have very educated parents and they have that privilege. But it's essentially for kids who are privileged. So part of the issue here is like, yes, in some ways, quote, quote, white kids can gain from, quote, black leadership. On a functional cultural level, I totally agree with that. But that's not what this debate is about. Not really, I don't think. I think it's about I, like, I don't, I just, how, I, yeah, I'm not going to disagree with that. that? I'm I'm not convinced that it's not about that. I think it's more nuanced. I think that there are people who have the concerns you're espousing, and that sounds like a challenging issue. Um, I think there are others who are just wary of the agenda of social change, of social justice, um, and are maybe uncomfortable and unfamiliar with what integration would look like, what further representation would look like. I think Mm -hmm. there are people who also hear these claims about having more black leadership, black voices centered in places of influence. I think they're also skeptical of that because they just, they think what for, right? Like the number of people I've talked to since George Floyd's passing who have said race was not an issue in my life or in my, in my setting until BLM came around and made a big deal out of what happened to George Floyd. A lot of people, this is, I don't think this is like a, like a small fringe group. I think a lot of people think that, the outcry going on right now is creating something rather than reacting to something. You see the difference? I think sure. a lot of people think that CRT, BLM, the far left, they are making race into something rather than looking at some of these groups as a reaction to the reality that race already is something in America. And so, mm-hmm. look, I don't want to, I don't want to, I, I can't really speak to what you were saying earlier about, yeah. you know, how to accommodate kids who are coming in with different, different learning capacities. But I do think that a lot of white evangelicals, a lot of white Americans are immediately suspicious about social justice, about greater representation, about even something like Black History Month, because in their minds, we're a post-racial society. And in their minds, mm-hmm. this outcry is being driven by ideology 
and not driven by the reality of racism. And, and I just, I think it's, 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 mm-hmm. it's imperative for the church. It's imperative for our church leaders to engage in justice education, to not see this as something separate from the gospel and from the kingdom of God, but as inherent to it. Uh, neighbor love, cross-bearing, taking care of the, the least well-off, this is inherent to the gospel. And so we can't mm-hmm. leave people under the illusion or under the, the, the impression that we are post-racial, that meritocracy is, is a reality, that um, we can't leave them, leave them in this sort of confusion about why we need to have better conversations about race, why we need to listen to black people. Um, we, we certainly want to avoid some perils, right? Like, mm-hmm. so one strand of critical race theory, um, call it, call, so th- one strand of critical race theory endorses what you could call strong standpoint epistemology. Standpoint epistemology roughly says that your authority as a person who uh, can testify to the reality of something is determined by your social background. And there are hierarchies of testimonial authority. So if I speak to a situation as a white person, and I'm talking about a race issue, my authority mm-hmm. is maybe diminished. Whereas if someone speaks to a race issue as a minority, perhaps a black person, their authority, their epistemic or testimonial authority is elevated. And there are at least in terms why. of the re- at least in terms of the receiving side of like discrimination, right? I think I had so, maybe um, say more. So like as a mean. white person, like you are involved in this whole system, like there, you have a perspective in the thing, but the person of color ideally like what we're thinking is but they've been on the receiving end of this they've been receiving stuff you haven't received so their ability to talk about that is significantly greater right the idea is that their ability to speak accurately and informatively and with a kind of authority about the subject matter is different than yours and this is so this is like standpoint epistemology and um strong standpoint epistemology says that um if you're white and you're trying to talk about racism you have no authority. Like you can't speak in any capacity to that issue because mm-hmm. you're white, you're privileged. And you can't be defensive because if you do, that's just your fragility because in you're just being defensive. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, I take issue with that. I think, I think strong standpoint epistemology is mistaken, but mm-hmm. I do think there's a modest, a very modest version of that. That's absolutely right. That my mm-hmm. experience is going to shape and influence how I perceive injustices, whether I think they're there, how, how harmful I think they are. And I, I do, I agree with that. And I think, that, I think it's one of the reasons why highly progressive white people who think they understand this end up getting in trouble because we still learn about this as an abstraction. Like sure. you can That's read hundreds right. and hundreds and thousands of pages about black poverty. And so you're like, I get it. I get it. And I've studied yeah. it scientifically from an empirical perspective. I get it. And then people are like, you don't get it. Right, and you're like, how can you say that? And there's a difference between learning something as an abstraction and learning something by doing it. Right, and yeah. if you if you weren't black and poor, you didn't you just didn't get that education, and it's very hard to give somebody that education. Yeah, absolutely, and you know, it's it's a distinction we make in epistemology between like propositional knowledge and then knowledge by acquaintance. You know, propositional knowledge is this sort of like heady abstract knowledge. Um, whereas knowledge by acquaintance is the kind of you know, knowledge you acquire by having encountered the thing. Mm-hmm. And so going back to the, the point I was trying to make, I think that a lot of people, a lot of white people in the church, um, for, them, for, for us, it's somewhat of a struggle to understand some of the things being said in the current racial justice movement and to understand why it's important to listen and learn from people of color. Um, 
And, and one of the reasons that's hard is because maybe we think what's being said is this really radical thing. Like as a white person, you can't say anything. You have nothing to contribute. You know nothing about this issue and only people of color can speak to it. But I think just let's, let's just be nuanced here and let's just recognize that not everyone is saying something as strong as that. And so mm. my sense is that a lot of us are coming into this conversation with a lot of concerns, a lot of fears, reasonable fears and concerns, some that I have. But we can't be driven by these fears and concerns. We have to learn to listen well. We have to learn to hear what's being said. Um, and so, yeah, yeah I, I, think, I don't know. For whatever it's I, worth, I think that's... Joel practice. So one of the one of the things you and I talked about at the, at the beginning was, I think it was before we started recording, was that there are some philosophies that are held by thinkers in really nuanced and sometimes even very helpful and creative ways that when yeah. they get translated into the general public, they get really bastardized. I mean, they just like, they, they get turned into just weapons and people just get angry and they just want to use them. And they want to, it's like, it's like the nearest weapon to hand syndrome. And my experience has been when I've sat down with like a real academic and talked about these things, whatever race they are, it's like this conversation, right? Whenever I interact to or listen to someone in public in Madison, yeah, this isn't a hundred percent of the time. I think like the church you're going to now with Pastor G. I think Pastor yeah. G is it is an exception to this. I think Marcus Allen's an exception to this. Uh-huh. Most of the exceptions to this are pastors. Uh-huh. Um, but like, I, but for example, Henry Sanders is a friend of mine. I went to one of his online seminars with black leaders this last year, talking about the issues of race, right? Yeah. And so, like, I'm like on a Facebook Live thing, right? Of the, I think there were six leaders in that conversation. There was one of them that arguably wasn't highly dangerously radical coming from an extreme standpoint position. Like, I mean, just like, I mean, there were literally like people employed by our government who were saying, look, this is how I deal with the black youth. Like I tell them, listen, guys, don't take pictures of me when you're destroying things because like, I mean, I can't be seen doing that, but, but like what he was saying, what he's saying what he explicitly said was I'm for you doing this, but you've got to realize we've got to play this game with white people where I'm the respectable guy who goes to the state house and I have this job and you guys do this and we're implicitly working together. Like he's like, this is how I work. I run with the youth and like, and then everybody's like oh, clapping. Oh, that's so good. There's comments just streaming through. And this is a, this is not like a, like, like, like a wrestling federation thing. Like th- these are like, the top black leaders in Wisconsin coming together for a thought seminar with other professionals who are involved in this kind of work. And so I'm there because I was just invited to come and observe and participate. And I'm watching this and I'm like, I'm sorry, you just can't say in reality from a political and public advocacy perspective that the people who are talking publicly are deeply nuanced people. They're not. Now, there could be justifiable reasons for that. Like it may be that white people are listening so poorly that, you know, like the, it's, it's like an argument in a marriage and the, the voices are just getting louder. Like, I'm not saying that those people are any worse than me or that I understand things better than them. What I'm saying is, is as I have publicly listened to the voices talking, I would not agree with you if you were saying, Nick, most of the voices who are talking publicly and advocating for things are just really like they're nuanced and balanced people. That hasn't been my experience empirically in Madison. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's how some, some of the folks feel, you know, and, and it's even worse if like you're learning about this stuff in your Facebook feed and now you've got a real like sifting problem 
where you're likely, especially if you're a conservative and your feed is already algorithmized for conservative stuff. Now you're just going to hear the very worst possible quotes from people, which I think is just, I think it's done a lot to harm. I think one of the reasons why CRT is looked badly on by Christians, other than some of the stuff about it's, it's the history of critical theory and its relationship to radicalism is that it was associated with BLM. And I think that I think that's one of the reasons why people feel like there's such a strong link between Marxism and and critical race theory is because a lot of the, some of the people who are at the head of BLM were both critical race theorists in terms of their view of race and Marxists in terms of their view of change. And so because some of those leaders held those two views together, it was assumed that they were fundamentally compatible as opposed to a Christian who would say, no, within a Christian framework, I can see that some of these things are are what Christianity would predict in terms of sin and how it would function, right? And yet I can still hold a Christian worldview in terms of how do we ameliorate these things? Yeah. Yeah, it's super interesting. Sorry, that was a mouthful I just dumped on you. But like, <laughs> I mean, like, like, listen, if I was a PhD student and we were just having beers about critical race theory and we had, I had no responsibility to a church and a public and a society as a, like, as like a, a practitioner, I mean, we'd just be like, yeah, CRT, it's cool. We do the blah, blah, blah. And here's like, let's write papers. And, and that's, I, that's, that work, that work has to be done. Or people like me have no chance of being nuanced and clear. Right. But sadly, the membrane between your world and mine, man, it hasn't been great. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I think, yeah, you're in a difficult position. And I think people working on the ground within churches and, and so on are in difficult positions. And I certainly don't have too much authority or experience to speak into that. But I can say what I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed with. And I can say that when I look at mm-hmm. the Southern Baptist Convention and their unqualified, non-nuanced repudiation of CRT, I just think that's, that's the wrong way forward. There's, there's kind of a lack of maturity and a lack of care here. Especially when, if you study CRT, if you look into it, you're going to find that there's so much that's informative and insightful, and then so much that you're like, yeah, I totally reject that. The, yeah. the thing about that repudiation, when we issue and, you, these, and you'd better teach that in the seminaries. Yeah. Right? Like, how do you yeah. get an MDiv today at Southern and not cover that somewhere? Yeah. How do you, right. How do, you, how do you make your way into, say, urban ministry or multicultural ministry <laughs> and not right. know about intersectionality? <laughs> And not learn about interest convergence and not learn about mm. the reason that people think that, um, you know, there's this thing called white fragility or something like that. Like you have mm. to know about these things, even if you repudiate about them. them. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And not yeah. just because that, but because I think a lot of these things are realities. Right. And I, when, I, I, and I agree with that. Right. And, and when, so when the Southern Baptist convention or when these seminaries issue these repudiations, it's no wonder, it's no wonder that so many African-Americans within the convention are completely puzzled. And com- feel completely mm-hmm. alienated. I mean, I can't speak from experience, but what I'm hearing what I'm, when I listen into these conversations is that there's this concern that the repudiation doesn't tell us what you affirm. And just saying, right. well, I think there's racism. Racism is real, everybody. It doesn't tell yeah. you what else you can say about racism. It doesn't tell you where mm-hmm. and how racism comes up. And so right. I just think it was it was really awful. Um, it feels like gaslighting, right? Like I, I oh, know absolutely. Like, a oh, lot of absolutely. people hate that word. I mean, I hate that word usually because gaslighting only applies to other people, never to you, right? But to be like, it's like beating up on your wife and then saying, "Look, I'm not perfect. I've done some things that have hurt you, but like you know what I just did wasn't really violent." You know, like it's it's sort of like it's the thing you say that you have to say so you can say the thing you want to say, which is I'm against you. And I think that. 
I think that that's, I mean, I'm sure that's how our black brothers heard that was like, they didn't hear like, oh, that's really comforting. You're really convicted about racism. What they probably heard was clearly you had to say that, right? But what you really want to do is take a sledgehammer to CRT. That's what you were, that's what this statement is about, right? Yeah, it was it was an opportunity to issue a repudiation about CRT. It, it wasn't about them talking about race issues in general. It was it was it was about CRT. Yeah. yeah otherwise, big... you say we think there's some real problems with CRT. However, and then you write 16 paragraphs about racism, <laughs> like and like what that's you think exactly is right. real. Yeah, that's that's you know? exactly right. You're you're, yeah. you're going to alienate people of color. I mean, look, you just are. You can't you can't you can't expect to make steps towards racial reconciliation by standing behind what you repudiate. You have to say what you're for and you have to say what you're going to do. And you have to communicate mm-hmm. unequivocally and unambiguously that you have a plan as a church, as a seminary to teach people about the legacy and ongoing impact of racism and then to teach them about how the kingdom of God addresses those things. Right? Mm-hmm. And so I, 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 this is probably one of my biggest concerns about this whole out, out, outbreak and, and reaction to critical race theory is the way that it's going to damage our capacity to have fruitful conversations about race issues. Mm-hmm. The reality is that it is now becoming hard for anyone to talk about white privilege, to talk about systemic racism, to talk about the difficulty with which whites sometimes enter these conversations and are somewhat hard of hearing. It's hard for us to talk about any of that without someone flagging that as CRT, without someone issuing immediate alarm that that is CRT. And the reality is that that's a conversation stopper. Instead of listening well and asking questions and being willing to learn, now we're consumed by this fog of skepticism, this fog of alarm about CRT, and the conversation is stopped. And I think that's going to be mm-hmm. really detrimental to racial progress and ra- racial healing here. So that's, that's funny because I, I would have thought the opposite was the case based mm. on the people that I talked to that like they feel like those are all magic words that you're not allowed to object to or talk about that white privilege, white supremacy, white fragility are all sledgehammers used to make sure white people don't object to the agendas Hmm. of anybody who wishes to advocate for the more radical views injected towards racial progress rather than more rigorous or empirical views of what may actually help people of color in our actual material systems. Well, uh, you know, that's an interesting point. And I think it depends on which context you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. In uh, a more liberal yeah. context, for sure, you know, um, yeah. objecting, objecting to those terms and concepts is not going to go well for you. And a lot of, a lot of conservative evangelicals are very concerned about that. Look, I totally mm-hmm. get it. I totally get where they're coming from, but we've got to look inward too. And we've got to look at the church. We have to care about the integrity of the church and, and that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking mm-hmm. about predominantly white spaces, predominantly white church communities that tell you that they care about racial reconciliation, but that whenever you enter a conversation with them about race issues, they're, they're on edge and on their toes waiting to hear something that triggers their fear of CRT and their fear of neo-Marxism. And honestly, mm-hmm. it's just not the way forward. And I think, that, you know, I think there's truth to that. I think there's, I think there's truth to that. And so I, I want to encourage our listeners to just consider or just consider that. Okay, I think that's true. And I think that I think that this has been true for like 75 years. I don't think it's new. Like yeah. I think one of the reasons why yeah. white evangelicals were not as involved in the civil rights movement as we could have been is because of our hatred of Marxism. 
I don't. I mean, I don't think there's any question about. It. I mean, Billy Graham got in trouble. I mean, Billy Graham was one of the most participatory. I don't think who was the guy who just wrote um, the evangelical black Scott guy who who wrote. He's a, he's like a seminary prof, I think, right now. He's about to come out with his uh, the second book. It's like white. It's like about white complicity and racism. Oh, I'm not. It's sure. been it's it's like been very famous recently. Oh gosh, I can't remember. I can't think of it. Not Tisby. Oh. Yeah, no Tisby. Yeah, Jamar Tisby's book. Yeah. What was that called? What was his first book called? Color of Compromise. Yeah, Color of Compromise. Right. Yeah. So he, he, I don't think he handled the real history of Billy Graham very well in that book. I think he had a point he wanted to make, and I think he made it. And I don't think that it's true to the history of Billy Graham. However, the one place I think Billy Graham did make a misstep is Billy Graham, partly because of his connection with Nixon and partly because of his connection with American Republicans also, was that they saw the specter of Marxism and they saw the relationship between the global growth of Marxism and American blacks. That like the language of Marxism, this is the same idea Bell was talking about, about why Brown versus Board of Education happened. That like there was this... But, but part of the issue was is that white evangelicals actually saw truly the horrific specter of Marxism and how terrible it was, right? So one of the, I mean, one of the scourges on civil rights history is the number of leaders in the civil rights movement that were for communism, that they believed communism was good, and they actually affirmed the United Soviet Socialist Republic. People like W.E.D. Du Bois, who said some incredibly important and helpful things. Yeah. Um, he was for Stalin. I mean, like he was, that was a good guy. I mean, he, he knew, I mean, I, I suspect it was out of ignorance and that he knew nothing of the Gulag archipelago, but I don't know. I assume that was the case. Right. But he was naive and dangerously and horrifically naive. Right. And so there's a lot of, I think, white evangelicals, because remember a lot of white evangelicals have a connected route to Europe. And so like my mom, as a child suffered under Mussolini. She understands mm. socialism and fascism and the horrors of it. There, mm. One of the most popular books among white evangelicals right now who are concerned about this is a book by Rod Dreher called Live Not by Lies, mm-hmm. where he talks about like these aging and they're like approaching death now, Eastern European Christians who actually fought under communism and like resisted it out of their Christian faith and its totalitarianism and all those functions. And he's like, look, you better learn from these people because it's coming, it's coming to you. And I think that, that this divide of like, Christians realizing what what how Christians have suffered and died and been um, and been murdered by the thousands and hundreds of thousands by totalitarian governments, and how that has worked through the Iron Curtain through fascist governments of Europe into the USSR, now in China, that's now like mitigating a genocide among Uyghurs that nobody wants to talk about about people of color being horrifically killed. There's a lot of American white people who don't want that. And I can understand how it's hard for an African-American to feel like just as you're trying to fight out of the oppression of white supremacy, for now your white brothers to say, hey, listen, you need to transition to us fighting against the specter of totalitarianism because totalitarianism is just as much catnip to the human sinful nature as is racism and our, the other forms of supremacies in which we we, we like harm and control our neighbors. And so I would say from like, I don't know, the 1930s up until right now, there has been this divide among Christians as to whether or not the most salient thing is to fight against the creeping nature of totalitarianism and its included godlessness and its desire to destroy the human family, which is God's first institution, relative to the people communism has been speaking to because they are in fact oppressed 
and ameliorating their oppression. Right. It's like, it's like the great conundrum of democracy, right? You have to, you have to have, you have to treat everybody like equals, but if you don't treat the people who don't do well in the, in democracy better than that, they will rebel against it and destroy the democracy. So, you know, liberalism to survive can't be entirely liberal. And and so like some of these difficult conundrums are like, are these like, I don't even think most Christians understand that this is the conundrum. But I think it's one of the reasons why they're so resistant to it. If you tell a white evangelical that totalitarianism is nothing to worry about and that we need to focus on racial reconciliation only, there's, they don't have the capacity to believe you. It's too far out of their plausibility structures, both cognitively and implicitly. And so I feel like I have to, as a pastor, I have to come up with a way to bring these two people together, treating them, both groups as real knowers of actual truths from different situated perspectives in the world in which we accomplish both things. One, racial reconciliation and racial justice, but also recognizing the thing that has been on the minds of free peoples, the people who have been so privileged as to be free, who don't wish to lose that freedom for their children, which is the people who have been privileged enough to care about freedom rather than just survival. And I think that their considerations are critically important as well. So having read W.D. Du Bois and King and all these other black leaders, I just finished Invisible Man, which was a great book by Ellison. Though though, though it's not a protest novel, it, it still kind of brings you into that world. I'm very moved that that work needs to be done. But having read Solzhenitsyn and Popov and Wurmbrandt and all these other people, mm. I, I am also inoculated against the idea that totalitarianism is going to be fine and that it doesn't sneak up on you. And so I feel, I feel in a very strange position. Mm. Mm. Sure. You know what I mean? Ah, that's so, that's so interesting. I, I see the tension that you're, you're experiencing. I, yeah, you know, maybe I'm just, maybe I lack historical context. Um, but I, but see I, don't, the I don't share this. I don't share the yeah, same. Okay. I don't share as much of the same concern over Marxism as other people do. I'm not a Marxist, not, not, not in the least bit, but but I am very concerned about racial justice issues. And I, you know, I just invite, I invite like the church, I invite the listeners to like, let's, let's go on a journey of thinking about how to balance these concerns, you know, for sure. Like concern about totalitarianism and loss of liberty. Like I get that. I, I totally get that, but I never want my fear of my loss of liberty to jeopardize or threaten my commitment to the flourishing of, of, you know, those who have been historically aggrieved, historically aggrieved. And so mm-hmm. We can, we got to figure out what other way to do both. But having said that, I want to be so clear about something. You know, there's this tendency mm-hmm. in, in some of these conversations for people to say, well, we got to do both. And, you know, when I listen to Neil Shenvey, he's a big, a big voice in this outcry against critical race theory. He often says, look, I think, I think racism is real and we need to repudiate it. But I, I just want you to also repudiate critical race theory. And it kind of feels like he's saying, like, let's do both equally. And I'll just tell you where I'm coming from. Like, I, I can't do that right now. Like, cause I don't think that critical race theory is the biggest problem facing the church. I, I actually hear a lot of white evangelicals saying this. I was, re- mm. I was um, listening in on a, a discussion the other day and someone said that everything was fine until critical race theory came around. And I hear, I hear um, a number of Christian leaders and seminary presidents saying critical race theory is the greatest threat to America today. And, and they might have some of the concerns you raised earlier about totalitarianism, mm. the influence of neo-Marxism. Mm. And you know what? Yeah, that is concerning, but I'm not at this moment in history where God is inviting us into something that involves liberation, something that involves concern that we maybe have not manifested 
in a long time or ever concern for our, our black brothers and sisters. I'm going to jump on, I'm going to jump on that bandwagon. 100%. You know, I'm, con- I'm concerned about some things that CRT says. I'm concerned about the, um, the loss of liberty for sure. But here's something that also concerns me that the median black wealth is eight times less than the median white wealth. And that probably the history of housing segregation plays a big role of that. I'm concerned about the fact that early childhood education is disproportionately awful for black Americans than it is for white Americans. I'm concerned about the fact that extra legal police aggression, I'm not even talking about police shootings. I'm talking about things like racist slurs, uh, roughing up someone that you've handcuffed, um, being aggressive, in a way that ends up causing physical violence to someone, to a suspect, all of that disproportionately impacts black Americans. The studies are in. I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about the fact that um, at, at the level of health, black Americans do disproportionately worse than white Americans. The COVID has wreaked havoc on the black community. I'm concerned about these things. I'm concerned about the fact that a lot of white Americans think we're, we live in a post-racial society. I'm concerned about the fact that a lot of white Americans, a lot of white evangelicals, think that the race, current racial outcry against against racism is rooted in some sort of conspiracy by the far left, or it's rooted in neo-Marxism, rather than seeing that there is an enduring legacy of racism and that people are actually responding to racism. And I, I'm concerned about these things too. And, and so I, mm-hmm. I couldn't take Neil Shenby's advice and center both of these in my discussions. No, because right now, God is inviting us into racial reconciliation. And I'm going to jump on that bandwagon. I have a lot to learn about that. And that doesn't mean that I can't care about freedom and religious freedom, and that I shouldn't be concerned about some of the bad things involved in CRT. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But right oh, now, I'm going so, to take okay, seriously so, God's invitation into a life of racial reconciliation. The other thing I would say, Nick, yeah, is that my repudiation of problematic aspects of CRT or neo-Marxism or whatever, I can't center that in these discussions without communicating even unintentionally to my black brothers and sisters that I'm more concerned about that than I'm about their flourishing. I can't. And mm-hmm. I hear some people say, well, look, I have to talk about CRT. We have to be concerned about it. We have to center it in these conversations because that's a major threat to racial justice itself. CRT is a threat to racial justice itself. And um, I just don't see it that way. I really don't. And with respect, no, you cannot center your concern over CRT while also caring about racial justice issues, because centering your concern over CRT is not the same as centering Jesus-led, gospel-centered activism and racial reconciliation, right? Again, reconciliation does not happen by primarily telling everyone what you're against. It's about partnering with Jesus, bearing your cross, putting a towel around your waist to wash feet, and joining others at the table of fellowship and, and being a part of their lives. And so if... If you have a concern with CRT, I understand. I have concerns about CRT as well, but I think we need to resist the temptation to center it in these discussions, and we need to resist the temptation to raise it every time we hear someone talk about race issues. Um, just slow your roll a bit. You know, pull back, hear their story, hear the evidence, be willing to engage, be willing to to be teachable. Yeah. And sure, on the side, let's have those conversations about critical race theory. Yeah, Joel, let me let me ask you, there's two objections to this. I think I want to let you, I don't sure. think we should debate. I just, I want to give you a chance to respond yeah, yeah. to it before we go. So I'll, I'll make a short case for it and then I'll let you talk. Um, two things. One is, man, it feels like the objection that CRT, in the way it is at least being propounded or making its way to the public, feels like it is a very strong detractor from racial 
reconciliation and interracial discussion and cooperation, since it seems to be advocating as a necessity um, identity politics, um, like a foundational a foundational conflicting nature between races, um, inherent like pretty like like that every white person is complicit in the system morally so in a way they should have repudiated and therefore like your enemy. Right. And so it seems, it seems like um, maybe CRT isn't doing it, but it's one of the nutrients in the soil of a very divisive. Like, I, I think I, can it both be true that since the election of president Obama, both race relations have gotten worse and attention to racial disparities have gotten better. So like we're dealing with an issue more now because of most powerfully under COVID, the death of George Floyd and things related to that Brianna Taylor, that sort of thing. But really since the election of Barack Obama, there was a more protest based racial dynamic and that that has produced significantly more I, I think the studies are in on on emotional racial division in america that it's significantly up right yeah, absolutely however at the same time i think what you're saying is yes but 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 before we were sweeping a real problem under the rug to feel better about ourselves so so it's almost like going to counseling like things are getting worse in the relationship but we're also being forced to face a problem yeah. that's actually the way you get a better long run that you face an acute you face acute pain in the present so that you can better get a better future. So maybe there are ways in which CRT is interacting dynamically in such a way as to make race relations worse because it does frame things as, as us being opposed to each other in a, in a way that could be seen as fairly cynical. And that could make people feel like they were each other's enemies. But yeah. the power structures that it's discussing are in some ways real and they do need attention. Yeah. And so sometimes you can't you can't fix a problem with having a bad argument where people's feelings really do get hurt. Sure, it, that's just the way human beings end up interacting with each other on difficult topics. What do you, what do you think about that? Because I do yeah. think racial relations are getting worse right now. Yeah, you know, I'm just I mean, hoping it's going to be worth it, but I'm concerned yeah. it's not going to be. Well, yeah, if we don't if we don't listen well, it's not going to be like. I think a lot of people are waiting for white evangelicals to make a decision. Is this going to be something that has kingdom fruit that brings shalom and flourishing to creation? And the black community for a long time in America has been pushing for justice. They've been doing incredible work at the ground floor level and at the social like legal level. And I think a lot of them are waiting for the white church to, to unambiguously and unequivocally join that cause and to not necessarily reject their concerns, not to just bracket and sideline your concerns about CRT or about BLM, mm -hmm. but to not let those concerns drive and not to let those concerns create a fog of doubt and skepticism. And as a result, a position of complacency. And so like, look, we are in a time of immense civil and social unrest. And I think your point about how that need not be necessarily a bad thing is good. The question is, what is the outcome going to be? And I, and I would just invite us to think about the way that we sometimes treasure unity at the expense of justice we treasure peace at the expense of flourishing and for a long time i think people have been crying out for peace this happened in the civil rights movement by the way right like a lot of white evangelicals were like wait where's the unity where's the peace 
you know, let's mm-hmm. be, let, we, let's be a people of law and order. Let's be a people of peace and so on. And that's great. There's a, there's a type of righteous peace and there's a type of righteous unity, but often that is a facade for comfort and for complacency and peace at the expense of justice for the people that I am called to love is not real peace. It's an illusion. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a facade. And so I, you know, I think that we need to, we need to ask ourselves not, is there unity? We need to ask ourselves, is there justice and is there shalom? And can the kingdom of God enter into the picture here to bring, to bring justice? And um, the long, yeah. a long-term goal is unity, but you don't get to unity by ignoring injustice. You get to unity by listening to your aggrieved brother and sister, by taking the time to pull back your skepticism, your doubt, and to listen well. Yeah, I, I was reading a book recently where psychologists, psychologists when, you, when somebody says, hey, there's a problem, you say, where's the unity come back to, towards us? That that's yeah. a psychological problem called hurting, where like somebody who's <laughs> yeah. supposed to conform well, differentiates themselves and, and, and like says, I'm an individual and this is what I require of you. And then you say, wait, you're you're upsetting our family, right? This is from family, fa- family therapy theory. And so they all say, you need to just awesome. come back into the group. And the first thing that has to happen for health is you have to teach that person not to come back into the group, hmm. that they have to succeed in differentiating themselves as an individual. Only then can they be a self that can call all these other herded people who have like codependent, like not real selves because mm. they're not differentiated. Can mm. they differentiate themselves? And then only then between selves, can you have a relationship and then love? Yeah. And I think that, I, I think that all groups are prone to do that. Right. And I think that's okay. So, okay. So quickly, two more. Okay. CRT and the sort of philosophies around it that like the systems are against people of color. I think that there are people who feel like that is the wrong message to send to young people of color mm-hmm. because it is highly demotivating because they don't hear it in a nuanced way. Mm-hmm. What they hear is no matter what you do, Whitey's going to stop you. Mm-hmm. And so why do well in school? Why do good in math? And what you should do is you should get involved in the subversive protest that we do through a culture of crime that like by not living up to their standards, by not being white, by not giving into whiteness, by not doing what they approve of, and by having a subversive system, either either an art of music of rap or these other methodologies, or even sometimes I've heard people talk about a theory of the nobility of gang relationships, that gangs are a way that we subvert a certain kind of lifestyle, that, sure. that that's what you should do. I, I've heard people tell me that dealing drugs is a way of subver- subverting whiteness, for example, because you're not buying into the economic rules of a system. You're, sub- you're subverting them and sidestepping them so that you can find a certain kind of success your, yourself in your own way. I, that sounds like one of the best ways to perpetuate a black underclass and one of the best ways to destroy the future of black youth that I could possibly think of. And so I think that there's some white evangelicals really concerned about that, but that just sounds like that. I mean, that sounds like, you know, the bootlegger and Baptist. That's like the bootleggers like, yeah, we should definitely outlaw alcohol. Like it's sort of, we shouldn't talk about, we should be really careful about talking about these things because it's going to hurt you. Yeah. And it, like I can see how like a black person would listen to that and be like, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. You know, like, but at the, at the same time, as a person who has worked with black youth, I hear them say this and I see them make bad decisions and they justify it this way. And it breaks my heart. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't yeah. know how, I don't know how so profound or spread think- a phenomenon that is. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, you know like, what I mean? That's a good question. Yeah. To what extent does that play out? And 
like, look, yeah, we certainly don't want to communicate to people that there's no hope. Right. On the other hand, we don't want to be like, we don't want to obscure the truth and we don't want to have mm-hmm. toxic positivity where we're like, everything's going to be okay. When there are some things that we need to acknowledge and some harms that we need to undo. And mm-hmm. I can't say, I can't really speak to, you know, what black people experience or feel when they hear about the reality of systemic racism. Um, I mean, they know it far better than I do. I can't really say what the solution should be about how to talk about that. But, but I do think that there's another thing that is discouraging and it's when white people are routinely skeptical and routinely hesitant in these conversations. Um, You know, there's a, a Pew research report came out not too long ago showing that maybe like one in four conservative Americans think that race plays any important role in how people end up in life. One in four, one in four think it plays any important role that it contributes in any important way to your social economic standing. And, you know, we don't, we, we could have a different discussion about whether, you know, race does play a pretty crucial role or not. Mm-hmm. But the point is that a lot of white Americans don't think that race is um, a major issue in contemporary society, especially a lot of white evangelicals. And so I can speak to that, that Whatever the impact of talking about this would be on blacks, I'm not sure, and I don't know how to handle that, but I do know mm-hmm. that a lot of whites need to hear it. A lot of us in white mm-hmm. evangelicalism need to wake up to the reality of systemic racism, or at least we need to start having conversations about it. I routinely run into doubt about the reality of systemic racism. I understand some of the objections that people have, um, but mm-hmm. I think those are the conversations we can have with each other. And the point is not just to point out what's wrong with the system. The point is to position ourselves so that we can undo things that crush the image of God in other human beings. Remember, our calling is to subvert the works of the enemy and to bring about shalom and healing for creation, right? The gospel is not just about my personal forgiveness of sins. It is about that, but it's not just that. It's about the transformation of a world to be restored to what God intended it to be. And the church is called to do that. But to do that effectively, I need to know where the problems are. And so white people can have conversations with themselves about systemic racism and we have to, and we, we have to do it more often, I, I think. And we need to talk about the evidence. We need to hear the stories. Um, so this is the journey we have to go on. And it, it doesn't have to be all at one point. We have to pace ourselves. This is something that Becca always encourages us to do, is to be in it for the long haul. You know, you can't, you can't start sprinting. You need to get in the race, but maybe you can't sprint. Maybe you should start jogging. And so, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not encouraging like that. I'm not encouraging the church or Christians to just forget everything else that's going on in their life, everything else they're learning, and only focus on race race issues. But I do think we need to start doing more of it. And fortunately, in Madison, there are incredible opportunities to do this. So Nehemiah Center for Urban Leadership, or the, the they're like the branch of Nehemiah called Justified Anger, is doing incredible things as far as justice education goes. The Black History course they offer is phenomenal. It's going on right now. It's going to be offered again in the future. Highly recommend taking it. So I don't know. We've got to keep having these conversations. And I just want to emphasize again, sure, critical race theory says some concerning things. BLM says some concerning things. But you know what else is concerning? Racial injustice, racial disadvantage, the legacy of Jim Crow and other sorts of racist actions. And, and, I, and I think that we can we can advance this discussion without coming into every conversation in a fog of fear and in a fog of doubt. And so, I don't know, we've, we've got to keep moving forward. Yeah. Well, for both of you still listening at um, like an hour and 50 minutes, um, my it got guest really day good has, at the end. Yeah. My guest day has been Joel. Um, I also want you to take from this just the fact that 
hopefully this is the hopefully you got to hear the way Christians should talk about issues like this rather than the way you sometimes see on Facebook or you see people yelling at each other or belittling each other, people trying to create media empires by taking one extreme view and trying to vindicate it to people who wanted to hear that. Yeah. Um, also, we didn't deal with this a lot theologically today. Um, there are all kinds of considerations like in Colossians where it says there's no longer a slave nor free man yeah. or woman. Does that mean that we should not consider ourselves in intersectional categories when we think about Christ and, or is that focused on the gospel and that we're all the same in the need of God's forgiveness or like we just didn't get into that. And it's not that we don't know that exists. It's not that we, that's not an important part of this conversation. It's just not what this conversation was for today specifically, because I wanted to talk as much as possible about CRT and um, other related concepts. So again, feel free to email us. Um, I think it's at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Um, but if you just sent to, to front desk at highpointchurch.org, we'll get that too. Um, with any questions you have or things that you want to hear more about. Joel, yeah. thanks so much for taking this time with us. Um, I, I do think it might be good to have a conversation in the future on the empirical evidence for um, for some of the things you're talking about, like white privilege and yeah. uh, so on. Because I, I think that that's, that that's one of the areas I think people do struggle that yeah. um, as a personally for myself, as I have looked into some of these things empirically, I have found the evidence very wanting and that the, like there's the studies are in, in the sense that there's lots of studies. I don't find them to be persuasive as somebody who did training in evaluating social science studies. And so, but some of them, but some of them I think maybe tell us a little bit. So I would love to, I'd love to walk through some of those with you and, yeah. um, and talk about what evidence there is for, um, for privilege, qua privilege rather than just what um, ends up being privileged because people make different choices yeah. and how, and how do, and how the church who that's not the government who that isn't bound to certain rules of impartiality, um, but to a different kind of impartiality of mercy um, can act and should act in ways that the government maybe ought not and how we can make a witness for Christ in some of these things that we do. So um, anyway, thanks for your time. Hopefully this is helpful to people and we'll see you all next time.